0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio. Powered by the Warner School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the 6th edition is out wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, I'm reg- registered representative a Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. The views or guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree. We are back live on campus today. We're broadcasting from the Wharton Studio on in Huntsman Hall. We have a guest here local from Philly, Guy Labas. Uh, Chief in, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at Janie Montgomery Scott. Gee, welcome to Wharton, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you very much, good to be here. Thanks for coming across town. We have Professor Siegel, uh, as always, to kick us off with the show. We have Professor, you've got Powell testifying or, or on CNBC with some comments and debt ceiling talks, Republicans breaking down right as we're, we're going live <laughs> here. Uh, how are you thinking about the markets? <laughs>
1: right and now nowadays if you any commentary that's three hours late is dated right I mean things are happening um i I listened to a little bit of Powell's commentary uh, there were some uh, a couple interesting uh, items uh there in talking about the the labor market um a bit uh he was talking about it was uh, a little puzzling to me he said we don't we how how does inflation and goods get into the service market well inflation in goods and housing gets into the cost of living, and then it's going to get into the labor market. That's certainly one way that it's going to happen. You talked a little bit about vacancies, which makes us, remind us, we got to look at that Jolts report, which is coming up the week after next. Um, uh, Just commenting on, on, uh, you know, we just got some news on a pause. I mean, the market is moving on this news of whether it's a, a dead deal or not, now everyone that's been listening to me I've been saying for six months it's hundred percent there's going to be a deal there's not going to be a default so um my, my feel it's sort of interesting because I think what is happening is that no one wants to be short equities or risk assets when the deal is announced because uh, you know it's, oh there's going to be a big pop, and so as a result, I think a lot of shorts over the whole week have been covering um, their position saying, all right, I'll wait until afterwards. I mean, certainly there's challenges to the equity market, you know, <laughs> beyond that. It's also interesting to me how yields have firmed up. I mean, will there be a lot of debt that will be issued? Um, uh, or will, you know, and as a result of the debt ceiling going up, will there be a lot of, uh, you know, treasury auctions near term? Uh, that could be one reason why we've really gotten a, a firming up of yields. What's interesting is the firming up of yield has not hurt the market and it has not even hurt Nasdaq very much. I mean, there's a little bit of a, you know, normally that would hurt uh, the the tech stocks. Um, uh, so there's there's interesting factors at play. But let, let's get to the economics here. Um, well, first of all, uh, I said last week I was uh, really um, looking at jobless claims because it jumped by 20,000 last week and that that was a lot, quite a jump and that could be the start of the slowdown we expected. Well, lo and behold, we get a, uh, a statement uh, that from the labor Department that uh, that was a suspicious jump in jobless, uh, that uh, it came from mostly one state, Massachusetts uh, that reported uh, widespread fraud in people applying for jobless claims. Uh, that were not uh, justified, so, so um uh, that that's why you have to be so careful about this data. so now jobless claims came back down to the two forty that they were before they jumped to two sixty uh, on uh, on Thursday's report now the the trend is still upward on jobless claims, so I mean it is but but certainly we didn't get a confirmation in any sense of the economy is falling apart and by by any means there is a slowdown and it's a slow slowdown um but uh n- nothing dramatic yet the the real data this week including you know the, the retail sales and everything else is coming in um pretty much on target uh, uh non, you know an economy that is chugging along at, you know, probably 2% GDP, which is actually well above what uh, the Fed forecast in their March uh, um, um, rating. Now, bottom line is next week, I don't see anything real important. Yeah, we get the PCE, but the truth is you can put that together from the CPI and the PPI. I mean, the real, it's going to be the week after next. That's going to be the big one. Um, And that's because the labor market, I think, is going to dictate pretty much um, what's going to happen in June. I still think there's going to be a pause. The only thing that would not be a pause is a hot labor market report, in particular seeing um, if that unemployment rate ticks down to, you know, 3.3% or so, which would uh, really show tightness. So you're, you're, the hawks are going to be screaming there, and um, it's going to be a quite an interesting meeting. So I, I actually think, the la- again, the labor market report is going to be more important for the Fed decision um, on, um, in, in June uh, than actually the inflation reports, unless they're you know way out of hand from, from what we uh, expect. Of course, we're also going to get the Jolts report just before we get the, um, the, the, the jobless report the week after next. So that's pretty much going to dictate. There'll be a lot of talk now and then. There's a lot of split decisions um we'll, we'll talk about that as the time approaches uh for the June meeting but the economy chugs um there's there's uh, there's there's no question uh, about that um uh although I- i'm going to tell you very honestly um i look at sensitive commodity markets i do not see them going up uh the commodity indices are either stable or in a downtrend um so I, you know, uh, you know, very honestly, uh, the economy is is holding up without reigniting inflationary expectations. If you take a look at the difference between the tips rates and 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 the nominal rates, the market base. Yes, we did have that jump in the University of Michigan, but yet um, outside of that, on the, in the market rates of of uh, either the swaps or the difference between nominal and real we do not see rises in inflationary expectations. We do not see rises in commodity prices. Yes, we had a one month stabilization of housing prices. We'll see how the case shower shakes out in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, also, um, uh, I guess it would be next week, the last Tuesday of the month, uh, but we, we will, it looks like it might've stabilized, but um uh, I, I don't see anything that uh, no, what, what's going to be inflationary pressure is still going to be services ex-rent because of how slow inflation moves into that sector. Um, but I would say that uh, I'm, I'm really looking the labor market report, the Jolts report that comes before it, uh, because vacancies has just been announced by Powell, something he's looking at, and he does quote Jolts. Again, we will get the jobless claims next uh, Thursday, uh, also uh, see whether it retrends upward or not. Um, but uh, labor market it, to me is the key to whether the Fed uh, decides to move. I, I still, I would say the odds are still two to one against it. Um, if we get a, a cooler labor market, or if the unemployment rate goes back to three five, and jobless uh, uh, and payroll growth goes down to one hundred to one twenty five, or even lower i think that the power will hold um, even though there might be some dissents on the other side A hot labor market report though is really going to be um, you know uh... food for the hawks uh... they're going to get the cpi on the first day of their meeting and uh... you know they'll look at that and 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 start arguing it could be one of the most um, contentious meetings uh... that we've had in a long time and by the way At this point, I expect a dissent on one side or the other um, for the first time in a year and a half in that uh, June meeting, because I know there seems to be a lot of uh, disagreement uh, um, voiced by uh, Fed members. We're going to be
0: going into all these issues with Guy Lebas here just a moment. But I saw, Guy, you you shaking your head on the first comment on interest rates rising on the debt issue. And do you want to provide any comments on that or any other thing else that you you heard?
2: Yeah, so at some point, the debt ceiling gets lifted or suspended, and that's probably, I'll call it an early June theme. It looks like in order to replenish the Treasury's general account, as well as to cover some of the extraordinary measures that Treasury Department has instituted over the last couple of months or so, they're going to need about 0.9 to maybe on the high side, about $1.1 trillion of bill issuance. That's going to take place over a period of three months, and I suspect what we're going to see is drains out of the Fed's reverse repo program, the RRP, which has grown so large because money market funds haven't had treasury bills to be able to buy. So we'll probably see drains out of that and into bill purchases, and that's going to affect things like relative value of short-term fixed income instruments, but it really shouldn't have much impact out further on the yield curve. I think we've got a couple things going on, and one of that is some repricing over the uh, the path of Fed funds. And I think that was in response to uh, Lori Logan from the Dallas Fed. Her comments uh, yesterday, or perhaps the day before, I believe, which were a little bit on the hawkish side, surprisingly, given what uh, what Logan has yeah. said in recent months.
1: Yeah, I, let me let me comment on that. Yeah, the, you, you're right. There might be just uh, an offset on on the repos and not uh, not affecting those those long terms. Uh, I. Uh, Oh, one thing, and I think actually Powell mentioned it in, in some of the newscom. The Fed funds futures, as we pointed out, is not an unbiased estimate of what those future Fed funds. I'm I'm looking right now uh, at the um, uh, futures uh, for December. I get four sixty nine right at this moment. Uh, I think there's a bias downward because risk premiums. Of 20 to 25 basis points, so it's really um, looking like uh, not even one cut in the expectation. Now, what I think, what I think the risks are, and yes, the consumer is very, very strong. Is strong. Um, I think that a negative payroll, the headline that that'll produce. The political pressures that will produce it once we get negative, and if, if, if it does happen, I do expect one or two of them to come in, um, is, is going to put pressure on the Fed uh, to uh, uh, reduce it. Given that the commodity prices, given the back end of those rental rates that are so lagged, are going to go into the statistics later uh, this year, as Powell has said now many times and said again today, actually um uh that we're going we're going to get that finally get that that rental down in there so as a result i you know my my feeling is uh, that uh, although you know they're all saying we're not going to reduce the pressures um you know uh, you know there's that well Ernest Hemingway Ernest Hemingway was once said how did you go bankrupt he said gradually and then suddenly um, this is what could happen to this economy. Um, the consumer can be strong until he and she is are weak. Um, and they said, oh, my God, you know, negative payroll. Maybe I can't get a job. Uh, you know, consumer sentiment is not good. And uh, maybe this, like, you know, you can't fire me mentality uh, could switch quite quickly, um, at which point consumer spending would fall off. Dramatically. We've now got mortgage rates that are approaching 7% again, Um, you know, after dipping down in the six, uh, which uh, seemed to be a very sensitive point. So, what I see is downside risks in the next six months, um, which I, if I were on the Fed, would uh, say, I'm going to wait. Um, And then, if I see those downside risks really materialize, Uh, I would seriously then consider those uh, uh, rate cuts. That would be my position.
2: Yeah, and I'm with you on the the theme about downside economic risks. I also liken uh, year-end pricing for 2023 in the Fed funds markets as not really a high probability of one or two rate cuts, but really pricing a low probability of many rate cuts which arithmetically, when you're looking at a sort of a a linear instrument like Fed funds, shows up as the same number. But I think a few things are priced in, or at least downside worries there. Uh, One, though again, I find the probability relatively low, is a more material breakdown in the health of the regional banking sector, which requires more concerted action from the Federal Reserve. So I suspect there's a small chance of that priced in as well. And in addition, the economic downsides you referenced. I think one thing about the economic downsides, uh, first of all, 2007 is a great analogy for for what we're facing in some ways today. There's a liquidity crunch, uh, in this case, not brought about by problematic mortgage funding markets, but brought about by a big increase in overnight interest rates over the last year, as well as some stresses within the regional banking sector, which is going to reduce credit availability. So there's one similarity to 2007. A second similarity is that in the summer of 2007, uh, we had uh, a lot of uh, public chatter about reacceleration of economic growth after a dip, not dissimilar to what we're seeing in markets today. And then in late 2007, there was a surprise negative payrolls print, which triggered about a 75, 80 basis point decline in yields across the curve. I believe it was in November. So I see a lot of similarities. The big difference, however, is that I think societally, we're anchoring our expectations to the 2008-2009 recession, worse than a generation. In reality, most recessions tend to be periods of actually not contracting consumer spending, but relatively stable consumer spending. So I can envision an economic downturn that is relatively narrow in nature, that is constrained primarily to interest rate sensitive sectors like housing, like commercial real estate, like autos. And that does not include a huge number of job losses or a big dent in consumer spending, just a little bit of caution on the part of the consumer. I think that's probably yeah, the me, most likely me, outcome
1: here. Yeah. Let me let – me, uh, I, I agree with some of those. I do take exception with similarities on 2007-8 to this extent. They were the huge banks that were in trouble. Agreed. Yeah, much I mean, smaller that's today. Not, that, that is 180 degrees different than what's happening today. Not only are the huge banks not in trouble, they're gaining at the expense of the regionals and the smaller banks and have really, uh, really sound balance sheets. Um, so, I mean, with, in a way, that that part is, of course, the hugely difference, but I agree with you on, on, uh, you know, any sort of credit tightening, whether it comes from the small and medium, uh, or, or, um, uh, or the rate cuts, uh, i the rate increases, uh, it does have a cumulative effect. Um, with that, I do have to, to leave, but, uh, you know, enjoy the rest of your discussion.
0: Thanks professor. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. We're going to continue our conversation. We have Guy Laba here on Wharton's campus. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Guy, it, it's it's interesting on the the banking issue that we were just talking about, and 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 how you see it from from your clients. Do you feel like people have made the move to cash? I mean, there's all this money going to money market funds. We talk about. Bank walks versus bank runs. It's sort of a team, you know, phrase our team's been using. Is that bank walk over or or you know, where, where do you see that position today?
2: So that's a fascinating question, right? It's obviously very important for a range of markets beyond just the regional banks. me pause for a brief advertisement. Uh, I have some colleagues at JANI, a little team led by Chris Marinak, uh, who uh, are bank research analysts. So they do this all day, every day. And uh, they as a group, not universally, on right, every institution, but they as a group are really optimistic about the ability of uh, pretty much not, again, I, I can't point to every, but the vast majority of banks in their coverage universe to earn out of the unrealized losses they have in their bond portfolios. So let me start by saying that the, uh, the, the valuation outlook in the banking sector may not necessarily, or uh, least pretty positive. Um, second, in terms of deposit outflows, it looks like they've slowed, right? We have a few weeks worth of data across that universe and the deposit outflows are much lower than they were. They're constant. They were concentrated at a handful of institutions and the funding models at uh, larger regional banks with a wide diversity of retail and corporate deposits, it's vastly different than the funding models at some of the institutions that have failed, which were heavily reliant on, uh, not quite wholesale deposits, but functionally wholesale deposits that can move very quickly. So we have a different banking system that's left after we've unfortunately trimmed some uh, some other riskier entities out of that. Ultimately, uh, the only thing that can restore confidence in our banking system is time. Uh, and there's a couple of policies that could help, but I don't think they're likely to be realized at this point. One policy would be increasing FDIC insurance to some arbitrary amount, say $2 million per account, just picking a number. Two uh, would be narrowing the differential between deposit rates and money market funds, as you referenced yeah. in your question. So right around, I believe it was last uh, last fall, the spread between the average yield on money market funds in the U.S. and the average uh, bank deposit rate, uh, as reported by bank rate, increased above 2.5%. And so, in other words, money market funds were yielding 2.5% more than bank deposits on average. And right when that started, there started to be a pretty notable inflow into money market funds. So clearly, some of the deposit flows are about realizing higher yields. Now, narrowing that gap will presumably solidify deposits in the banking system. The downside for the banks is that there's profitability problems with yes. that, right? Uh, and so the Federal Reserve could—I'm not saying they're going to—they could act to protect bank deposits by acting to lower money market rates, either by cutting rates. By, by cutting rates is the obvious one. There's some technical stuff about uh, relative uh, administered rates and some various programs that probably would not work, but that's something else they could, in theory, do.
0: It, it is—it's it, fascinating. It, it, this is not one of the easiest things to get data on, like what is the. Or, or maybe the, I'm looking at the wrong places, like what is the average bank paying on their checking accounts? And th- that 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 profitability, I mean, we show sort of record gaps in what they're paying, um, sort of 4% type spreads, like they're only paying on average one when you get close to five, um, which now the question is, is there enough people who just want that pure liquidity of a checking account versus, hey, I could get five?
2: Right, and so... Uh, there, There is obviously a, a large portion of bank deposits that are sticky and almost entirely rate sensitive. And I should warn you here, I used to serve as a, the asset liability officer of a New York-based bank before I joined JANI a number of years ago. So this is sort of in my blood. Yeah. Um, and the bank deposit pricing discussion is one of the most critical profit discussions that any bank has. In fact, the big banks have to uh, report to their regulators, predominantly the, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve, what their deposit beta is, how much they'll adjust deposits in relation to changes in short-term interest rates. Smaller banks and regional banks don't necessarily have to, have to pre-report that. But one of the themes about um, deposits is they are for banks. They're sort of a hedge against their bond portfolio. So it's a little bit of a weird way to think about it, but the bigger differential between market interest rates, like money market fund rates, and bank deposit rates, the more value that cheap funding to a bank has. So as interest rates rise and banks in aggregate lose money on their bond portfolios, they also gain money, and I'm using sort of air bunny quotes here by gain because it's not literal cash uh, or valuation. They gain money from the value of their deposits. So what really changed in March was the deposits shortened up, and that value that deposits had suddenly changed. And that's yeah. really what strike, struck the banking system so violently.
0: I mean, it's, so they it, it stated it a little differently. It's like, hey, we're, the banks aren't going to pay you what you really could get. Because they're trying to not take advantage, but because people are keeping their deposits sticky without thinking about trying to work their cash harder, or there's not easy ways to pay off treasuries today, or they will be soon, um, that is a profit center for the banks. Huge. It's the biggest profit center. That's one of the, uh, the
2: ironies of the banking sector is that the stuff that makes them the most money in the long run has nothing to do with the loans or the they're making or the bonds they're buying. It's all about the deposit service. are not holding.
0: paying your checking account. So that's fascinating. Um, we could, we'll, this, we, we, we've we hit this topic for, for a while. But so as as you go back to, as the the big macro takeaway from all this is, I, I'm sort of cautious on the banks because I think it's going to get harder. And I think people will, the consumers will will increasingly hear about these spreads and there'll be new ways to get it. So I'm sort of cautious on that, but you think the stocks are attractive?
2: Well, or so G- I, G- I, yeah, G- I'm not G- an equity G- analyst <laughs> to be clear about that. My colleagues led by Chris Marinak and our uh, bank equity research group are very optimistic at these
0: valuations. Right. Um, how do they, What what's the Janney House view on equities generally? Cautious, um, but, uh, cautiously positive.
2: So uh, one of the themes of the last year, uh, and this is probably no surprise to the listeners, is that corporate profit margins have, have been pretty healthy uh, and inflation has boosted nominal profits, at the very least nominal revenues across a wide swath of large companies. And so that provides a little bit of a protection, a little bit of a cushion against uh, an economic downturn. And also given how sharply valuations changed, if indeed we do get an economic downturn later this year, the equity market response is likely to be less severe than it has been historically. Historically, uh, for, forgive me, I'm a, a bond, bond-gee. Yeah. I don't bond know the equity numbers off the top of my head, but historically and there's been, whatever, a 20% correction in equities in the face of a recession this time around because we've experienced that and because of profit margins being a little bit larger in the face of inflation. It's probably going to be a lot smaller, but there are some downside risks.
0: Interesting. In, in terms of the... Um, the risks to the markets, they like kind of, we're going to come back to your your focus on fixed income in a moment, because we talked about banks being attractive. Are there places that Janie Houseview has been cautious on within, you know, given where valuations are, they like banks, but maybe other places they're, they're avoiding?
2: Yeah. So, uh, and I'm speaking for some of my colleagues, including Mark Lucchini, our chief investment strategist at Jannie, Um And... So uh, one area that uh, he's somewhat cautious on are the traditional defensives, which have been bid up, Uh, you know, for example, utilities and consumer staples that have been bid up kind of heavily in the first portion of the year or so. Uh, And so holding too many of those into an economic slowing traditionally is a good way to perform well. But since they've already been bid up a little bit in advance of that, he and my colleagues
0: are a little bit cautious on that front. Very good. So let's let's stay back to the macro. Um, you know, we, we started off on the banks and uh, some of the issues on on where rates are on on uh, money markets. You and I had a, a little exchange uh, about some of the real estate issues on and the loans uh, on the real estate and and where things are. Uh, is that a issue that you your team give us your view on on real estate as a issue for the banks as an issue for the economy? Is this something we should be worried more about?
2: So let me start on the residential side. It's a huge portion of uh, the real estate markets, obviously. Residential real estate has been surprisingly, amazingly, incredibly buoyant for all of the headwinds that it's faced. It, it yeah. really is surprising. So I think we all, as many of us who are listening are probably homeowners, or at the very least we were we were born short real estate and are figuring out how to cover it, uh, that the the themes that you know are are, are pretty well-worn, right? Prices are high based on the last 10 years or so of, of data. Prices are high relative to income levels. Funding costs are very high. I think uh, Professor Siegel mentioned 7% mortgages, or maybe you touched on 7% mortgages, kind of kind of bouncing around that level. That's expensive, yeah. uh, most expensive in a generation, functionally. And yet, housing starts aren't falling off a cliff. If they're, they're down. They're not falling off a cliff. Uh, valuations, as measured by the Case-Shiller Index, they're down a little bit but they're not down a lot. There's no forced sellers. It's not like a 2008-2009 scenario where banks became forced sellers of real estate. So the residential real estate outlook I would describe as surprisingly steady, given all the headwinds. Where the challenges are likely to be more problematic lie in commercial real estate. This is not a surprise. The commercial real estate markets are hugely diverse. Uh, The obvious pain points are the big marquee office properties, particularly in Tier 2 cities. And forgive me for the listeners in Tier 2 cities. uh, But uh, those are cities uh, that, uh, without naming any specific examples, uh, probably have smaller residential bases, uh, probably smaller tourist bases. And they have a commute to work downtown theme. And those office buildings, in particular, uh, face uh, vacancy challenges. I suspect the uh, marquee properties in major cities will eventually work out, albeit at lower valuations and given current vacancy rates. But I think there's also a huge conflation between these handful of very, very large properties in major cities uh, with all sorts of other aspects of commercial real estate, like uh, outdoor grocery anchored real estate, which is also owned by REITs, often lent to by banks, put under the category of commercial real estate. There's no material risks in that sector, right? Right. Um, And there's also a huge misunderstanding about bank lending to commercial real estate. If you look at regional banks, on average, a large portion of their balance sheet and their loan book is commercial real estate related. Not all, but many of these loans are to owner-occupied commercial real estate. So the cliche here is maybe a dentist or a doctor who also physically owns her own or his own office building, right? So As a bank, you're really lending to the business, but that loan is secured by the office, so it's categorized as commercial real estate lending. So in the regional and community banking sector, that is a very, very large portion of what's on their balance sheet. It's vastly different from that other example of marquee office buildings, which tend to be owned by REITs, and they tend to be financed by the CMBS bond markets rather than direct loans.
0: We're here in Philly. What, 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 what tier is Philly here?
2: Uh, well, I think of it as a tier one city. I've lived here for a while and I really enjoy it. So, Tier one. We, how is Philly office space uh, populated? Well, I can say from personal experience that three days a week, it's pretty full. The other two, Monday and Friday, eh, uh, maybe not so much.
0: Yeah, we're we're in we're downsizing and uh, we downsized our own personal space in New York to from like 150 people down to a much smaller space and even still the conversation this week was maybe we should downsize again because we've done full full hybrid and people enjoy the hybrid. But
2: Yeah, it totally depends on the business, but uh, I, I will say that you know we have a, a full house at uh, at my
0: floor on Jani probably at least two usually three days a week. Very very interesting. So gee, give us your take. You talked a little bit about your recession views. How does that tie into your outlook for interest rates? How you suggest people be thinking about high-level fixed income portfolios today? Yeah,
2: so, so there's a little bit of a two-way risk at the moment. Uh, so it seems that at least in the short term, you know, we're, we're kind of building in expectations of maybe more Fed hiking. I don't think it'll actually materialize, but we're building in those expectations. And that could push uh, sh- short to intermediate term rates, call it two to 10-year yields, up a little bit higher than they are right now. Uh, But I'd be a buyer, a little bit above uh, 370, 375 on the 10-year, because in an economic slowdown, uh, all rates are going to fall. I used an example in talking with Professor Siegel earlier of 2007, obviously an imperfect uh, comparison, but in 2007, the first negative jobs, print, uh, again, it occurred in November, it was kind of a surprise. You know, the, the, the markets, the economy, weren't really looking for it. And term interest rates, 5 to 30-year to interest rates, fell by about 75 or 80 basis points in a matter of a couple of weeks. So even if there is some risk of higher rates in the short term, we still need to be keeping an eye towards that potential. And that's a fall 2023 problem. Uh, so I would be a buyer of intermediate to longer-term uh, bonds. And for my world, longer-term is
0: kind of in the 10- to 15-year area. So fall 2023 is when you think you get the first negative payroll report that the professor is talking about?
2: It's probably the period of highest risk,
0: I'd say. We're talking October? Uh, November. You know, fall's three
2: November. months long, right, Jerry? Uh, so <laughs> we, 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 got, we got a couple months in that period. Uh, in, a, in a downside scenario, I uh, could see 10-year treasury yields touching about 280 uh, in an extreme, very unlikely scenario, right, the absolute downside is probably about 190. Um, and we're not allowed to say what's the worst case scenario after 2008. But uh, that would take a lot of economic slowing and a lot of Fed action to get there. So I don't think it's particularly likely.
0: What's the upper end of where you see yields? Like if if they were to surprise higher, how high could the 10-year go?
2: Well, uh, the head of the New York Fed, uh, Williams was talking about neutral interest rate projections today a little bit, and if uh, inflation refuses to decelerate, kind of remains roughly around the current pace, neutral interest rates, uh, according to uh, his comments as well as the Taylor rule, would suggest we'd get a three, excuse me, five fifty to five seventy five Fed funds. And that's not at all priced in, so that would bring 10-year treasury yields up roughly an equivalent amount uh, in that scenario, particularly if it's going to hold for a while. So I'd say the high end that we face right now is probably about a 390. 390? I, I don't think that's, again, I don't think that's particularly likely, uh, aside from perhaps a touch point. We've been in a consolidation range in uh, yields really since the uh, Silicon Valley mess back in early March.
0: Yeah, we touched over four before, and... uh it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's been one way down since then. But yeah, it's pretty much.
2: And, and recall that when we hit our highs in yields for this cycle, uh, so far, there have been highs. I suspect they will be the highs for, for the entire cycle. Was right in the midst of uh, the utter breakdown in market functioning in the UK government bond markets. I mean, uh, you can't call a market that swings 50 basis points in yields a day as functional.
0: Right. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, in in terms of those long term, tips yields and and we've been talking a lot about that on this show. Professor Siegel in Stocks for Long Run, the latest book, talks about the tenure tips being lower for longer. Um, you know, and and sure you're you should have slightly, well, maybe like one and a quarter, uh, maybe a little bit higher now. What what's what's the where, do you have a view on where the tenure tips settles out? Right. So so I like to think about uh, tips
2: as a market. So if you talk to 10 different people about in the fixed income markets about TIPS, I'll give you 10 different ways to view them. One of the sort of economists' view of the TIPS market is that it reflects an unbiased predictor of long-run inflation expectations, predominantly. Uh, I think it's a market like any other, uh, and it tends to be pretty correlated to risk assets. So if we get a material resurgence of equities into the end of the year and a little bit of a reflationary trend and we skirt the economic downside, I would expect uh, TIPS to outperform treasuries into that scenario. But barring that outcome, I I don't have a strong belief in their ability to predict inflation in the long run. So the markets
0: are not good at... uh... In inflation. Well, I,
2: I think they're just a market, right? You've yeah. got buyers and you've got sellers in any given day. And they're not, they're not hugely liquid, right? So like compared to treasuries, there are days when, you know, 1% of the entire volume in treasury markets is actually in tips. So it really does not yeah. provide a lot of long run informational content on ec- on economic views.
0: I thought fixed income was supposed to be the smart money who knew everything.
2: Well, we know everything about flows in the short term. That's what tips are telling you. Uh, But I mean, I I think a great example is uh, March 2020, right? So horrible period, uh, and TIPS just absolutely underperformed massively, almost a one-to-one correlation to equities and risk assets and relative performance. That's all they were. They were a proxy for risk assets. And I suspect that uh, while that was a very extreme version, that based on some statistical decomposition we've done... Is probably about 40% of their relative performance long run is just
0: completely tied to risk assets. Very interesting. So let's go on to corporate credit. Uh, how are you thinking about bonds, uh, investment-grade bonds uh, as an extension of after treasuries? So spreads on investment-grade bonds have
2: widened since this time last year, roughly this time last year. Uh, and we're, treasure- we're trading at a level that historically is... About average for good times. By contrast, the fundamental measures of credit quality within investment grade space are some of their best in history. So let's exclude financials for a moment because they're, they're their own sort of complex analysis, banks and, and so forth. But among non financial companies, the ratio of debt to EBITDA, so just a measure of how much debt they have relative to how much income. Uh, they have to pay off that debt. Uh, among investment-grade rated companies in the S&P 500, it's at the lowest at history for a late cycle experience. Right? So we're relatively late in the cycle, the economic cycle. Typically, when that happens, there's a lot of borrowing. Companies are heavily levered. Well, this time around, they're actually pretty lightly levered. And at lowest rates ever. Right. And the historical borrowing rates are relatively low. So interest coverage measures and other measures of uh, indebtedness are uh, are pretty favorable as well. So I suspect the investment-grade markets are going to have a better than historical experience even into economic slowing. So pretty optimistic on that front. The high-yield markets have similar fundamentals. So, uh, for example, the U.S. High-Yield Index uh, and their ETFs that track this, a range of them, they basically have, with a few exceptions, no bond maturities until 2025. And if you're a high-yield company that... Uh, is in the business of, I don't know, drilling for energy. Just pick a field. In order to have a default, you need to have a bond or a loan maturing. You need to have an obligation to pay off that you can't renew, right? And so it's very hard to see an increased default rate in the next couple of years with almost no debt coming due from the high yield index. So even though high yield spreads are relatively wide and high yield historically has done really poorly into the early phases of an economic downturn, I suspect it holds up better than historical averages this
0: time around because fundamentals are so much better. And I've been a stocks for long run advocate here with the professor, but I, you know, when I when we talk about the equity forward return, we say, hey, PE's a little bit below twenty. You get five percent plus earnings yields, maybe two to three percent long term inflation. It's a seven to eight percent nominal type outlook. Maybe it's a little bit higher, but it's not much more than eight percent. And you're getting close to nine in some of these high yield. Yeah, indexes. some of the high
2: yield names are are, are certainly above the sevens. Um, you know, are at, at my organization at Jani, we tend to have an up in quality bias across a range of sectors. We tend to focus on the double B stuff rather than dipping further in the quality range. It, but yields are seven percent plus across the high yield spectrum, uh, and that's certainly appealing
0: for for those
2: with the risk budget to be able to tolerate it. Um.
0: And, and so is that maturity issue very similar in the investment grade market not a lot of maturity to concern about and they are all of these companies are doing pretty well generally profit margins are high is any any worries about that uh, becoming a risk yeah
2: so so what happened in the high yield markets was a little unique uh, in the last couple of years of low interest rates a lot of issuers refinanced debt that was coming due so they would issue new bonds at lower coupons at a longer term say, a seven-year bond, and buy back their one- or two-year bonds. And so that's why in the high-yield sector you have that sort of gap. Fewer investment-grade companies did that. But generally speaking, if you're an issuer who's investment-grade and you have a bond coming due, you can issue another bond to be able to roll over that debt. So that rollover liquidity risk is a lot less significant in the investment-grade markets as a theme, it's less of a worry whether there's bonds coming due
0: or not within the IG index. If, um, in terms of the other places of the bond market, we talk a little bit about your treasury positioning, high yield investment grade. Do you think about, are there other things you like to comment on and, and talk about in, in, the, in the bond market?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, the tax-exempt muni market. The tax-exempt munis uh, are bonds issued by state and local governments. They are, uh, the interest on them is exempt from federal taxes, and if you live in the state in which you buy the bond, also from state and local taxes. So they're a mainstay of individual client portfolios. At JANI, a very large portion, uh, somewhere around half of our fixed income holdings as a firm are in tax-exempt munis. The muni market is only roughly 10% of the overall U.S. fixed income market, but it's really important to individuals because they can, uh, they can achieve that tax-exempt benefit in a way that many other investment uh, investing participants cannot. For example, a, a Japanese life insurance company has no benefit from that. So they're really important to individual investors. The sector, much like investment-grade corporates, uh, is in really good credit health right now. And a few things behind that, generally there were really conservative budgeting practices in 2020. So uh, that's kind of had a holdover and built up rainy day funds. A lot of municipalities were essentially budgeting for the next year right when COVID hit. And they sort of said, oh, no, you know, it's going to be a horrible economic time. We've got to cut back spending. And then it wasn't a horrible economic time for for many municipalities and for income. And so they built up some rainy rainy day funds. Uh, In addition, a lot of pension issues were been solved by uh, higher equity markets and somewhat higher interest rates. And so credit health is pretty good. That said, demand is really high, so prop buy is really low, so pricing in the municipal bond markets is inaccurate, a little unfavorable right now. So I'm not especially excited about that market, even though it is really important. One area that I am excited about, uh, and this is another you know, for those with the risk budget to tolerate it uh, discussion,
0: is the preferred securities markets. Mm. Coming back to the banks, coming back to the fear world yeah. view on banks <laughs> that we started off with.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, not being an equity person, I, I'm not equipped to to share about equity valuations on banks, but preferred valuations on banks are, are pretty good. So the preferred markets, uh, they take a, a wide range of, of themes. They are generally subordinated debt-like instruments issued by mostly banks. About 70, 75% of the preferred markets are financials. And they're dominated by big issuers. That sector has a correlation between the stock markets and the bond markets. It tends to be one of the last sectors to recover because it's dominated by a lot of retail participants. And it's one of the riskiest sectors of the fixed income markets. And so even as interest rates have come down in traditional bonds, the yields and interest rates in the preferred markets have stayed somewhat elevated in the last few months. But if we do generally get sort of sideways to hopefully slightly higher equity markets over the course of the year, I'd expect the preferred sector to do really well. And valuations uh, among regional bank preferreds were hit very, very hard over the course of the last six weeks or so. And so I certainly believe that there are opportunities within that sector. I I, unfortunately, by policy, can't mention individual names. Of course. Uh, It's also not a good time to be a hero. But having a sprinkling for those with the risk budget to be able to tolerate uh, in the preferred sector, I think, definitely makes sense right now.
0: For, for a broad index type concept, h- how much higher are yields than normal, you think, in terms of what that opportunity looks like? Yeah, so they're probably about 200 basis points too high. Uh, too high is a
2: subjective judgment. But yields in a lot of instruments in the preferred sector are in the 7 to 8% even plus range. Uh, and the credit fundamentals of a lot of these issuers uh, are far stronger than that.
0: And and uh, between regional banks or the big banks, is that is there a distinction between those at all? In pricing, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh,
2: you know, a lot of the regional bank preferreds fell in market value. The preferreds fell in market value by 15, even 25% over the course of the last six weeks or so, they've generally bounced off their lows. Uh, Whereas valuations in the big banks in that sector have fallen a fraction of that, call it about 5% or so in round numbers. There's still opportunities there. Uh, They're just a little bit less obvious. And I'd rather sprinkle some funds around in regional bank preferreds and have a wide range of them than concentrate them in, uh, in a couple of bigger bank preferreds.
0: How much do you look outside the U.S. for a fixed income? Is is uh, and certainly uh, in, the, a lot of people have view, strong views on the dollar. Uh, and there's different ways you can go overseas, but sort of emerging market debt tends to be some of the highest yields. Uh, some of these these countries can have double digit yields. Uh, any any views or appetite to go abroad?
2: Yeah. So at Jani, we are mostly focused on the U.S. dollar fixed income sectors. The vast majority of our clients are uh, they they pay their bills in dollars, so uh, that's that's call it ninety percent of our time and attention. In addition, since twenty thirteen, because of changes in bank and later insurance capital regulation around the world, the ties between uh, developed market sovereign bonds have become a lot closer. So a bank can receive the same capital treatment whether they buy a German Bund or a U.S. Treasury. And so those have traded a lot more closely, and it's harder to, to get a little get incremental value with cross-border transactions by choosing, say, a developed market foreign bond. The foreign exchange themes are, are dominant in that trade. So if you're hedging the FX, you'll get one performance. If you're not hedging the FX, you'll get a totally different performance, which means it's mostly down to changes in currencies. When it comes to the EM sector, um, I'm very, very cautious there right now, very cautious. So historically, a rising dollar has been uh, challenging for, uh, for EM land, also a rising euro in recent years. We seem to be shifting into the reverse of that secularly, and so that probably opens up some opportunities, but there's some huge idiosyncratic risks among the largest EM countries right now, uh, to name a few, Turkey. Uh, we've seen the, uh, the election drama unfold there over the course of the last couple weeks or so, Argentina. Uh, if memory serves, the Argentine Central Bank just raised overnight interest rates to ninety odd percent, and so these sort of high beta emerging market entities are, uh, you know, could dent a broad basket of uh, EM debt pretty significantly. So it's hard to be optimistic on the sector as a whole. Uh, there are probably some uh, specific examples to pick and choose from that are attractive,
0: but a broad uh, EM view is negative. How do you think about geopolitics in some of those conversations? We talked a little bit about the debt ceiling at the start, but ge- and politics are coming up in the u s. But geopolitics are 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 the huge issue for emerging markets. what's your What's your view on on the world here?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a very broad question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll say that um you know, the economic divergences uh, across currencies, across regions that were really prominent, call it about a year ago, they seem to be coordinating a little bit better. So we had the eurozone economy at huge risks from energy stuffs about a year ago, whereas the U.S. economy was booming, right? That contrast has kind of gone away. They're now trending a little bit more closely in the same direction. The Japanese economy is trending a little bit more positively in range with other developed markets. Uh, the Chinese economy, while not booming, far from it, has uh, recovered nicely after the uh, government-induced COVID shutdowns for a couple of years. And so we've got sort of economic growth coordinating across a lot of countries. And I think that'll smooth over, quietly, a lot of the uh, geopolitical disagreements. Not to be, you know, everything is about money, not to be that, that person. But uh, when there are fewer economic divergences across countries, I think there's less a need or, of a release valve for geopolitical tensions, and hopefully that comes true, it'll be uh, that'll make me happy about human nature over the course of the next six months as well.
0: Teasing out one of our conversations we're going to have next week here on Behind the Markets, we have Corbu's economist Sam Rines. Uh They do a lot of work on geopolitics. Uh, we'll be talking to Sam. I know both of us uh, are fans of some of their work, and uh, so that 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 is just one one conversation. Do you expect anything out at the G7? Next week, uh, as Biden goes to Asia, any, any big, big stories coming to us? No,
2: I mean, I don't, it doesn't seem like it. Um, you know, one of the, the sort of the big geopolitical story that uh, at least is kind of on the back burner for the last couple of weeks with the debt ceiling focus has been uh, Biden's attempts to get a one on one meeting with uh, uh, Xi Jinping. And as far as I gather, there hasn't been much progress on that front. And I think that's probably the biggest positive uh, geopolitical touchpoint that we could see over the course of the next little while. I don't have any insider sense of what that's likely to look like or what
0: the odds of it are. So sort of closing thoughts. Any 30-second uh, wrap-up? Any final thoughts you want to convey to our listeners? Yeah.
2: So very simply, uh, 2023 is a great year to generate income, right? If we're cautiously optimistic on equities, maybe they move up, maybe they move down. If you can get some income generation in that sector, that's a great thing. And I'm biased, but there's a lot of opportunities within the fixed income markets. Interest rates are, based on the last 20 years of history, pretty high right now. I think it's a good time to lock in for you know an intermediate term portfolio.
0: Theme income is back in fixed income. Indeed uh, it McGee is. Ba, Jandy Montgomery Scott, chief fixed income strategist here on Warren's campus. Thank you so much for coming to the studio. Thank you for the chance. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard. Thank you for helping out here. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.